Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53. I hope that the series we've been doing on Sunday mornings from the book of Isaiah has been an encouragement to you. And it covers just about, this, this book covers just about every doctrine of Scripture. It's a great prophetical book. And I'm praying this morning that as we study a very, very prominent chapter, a very famous chapter, a very important chapter of the Bible, that will encourage your hearts. Now, would you stand with me, even in the privacy of your home, out of respect for the reading of God's Word? Would you stand with me for the reading of the Scriptures? And I wish I had time to read all 12 verses from Isaiah 53, but we'll preach them all. But I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 this morning, actually 1 to 6, verses 1 to 6 today, and I want you to just make sure everybody in the, in the house has a Bible they're holding, and you're standing on your two feet, you're properly dressed and ready to receive the Word of God. I hope you're thankful that we have live stream services, and I hope that you'll take a moment to thank our live, uh, our live stream and AV crew for all their work and preparation and just being behind it. It takes several men to run this for us to do an effective job, we're thankful for that this morning. Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah 53, please as we're preaching away, feel free to send comments along the way, the name at here and there is good and you agree with that. If God touches your heart, do with that. And then I want to encourage you this morning that as we get to the conclusion service, if God's working in your heart, and he will, to make a decision, let us know what that decision is. Let us know so we can be of help and so we can pray for you. This past week, we've, we launched off two weeks ago our prayer works ministry, and uh, we're just you know really trying to get an audience of people that are unchurched and unsaved to realize there's a church here praying for them, and we're thankful that this week a young 14-year-old boy found us, online, found us, and he got to the prayer works page on, on our webpage, and he said, please pray for me, and he listed what his request was. We passed it on to one of our staff members. Immediately, the young man was called, prayed with, but then he was asked, if you die today, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? The young man said he wasn't sure. We're thankful today that young man trusted Jesus Christ as a Savior, and we're praying for many more opportunities like that. We're thanking God that through all of this, we're having opportunities to share the gospel with people. And uh, for our regular members, attendees, even right now as we begin reading the Scripture, would you take a moment just to send a quick, quick message to someone and say, hey, please watch our service. Our pastor's preaching from Isaiah 53 or preaching an encouraging message that will help you in your decision for the Lord. Isaiah chapter 53, and I want you at home to read along with me out loud. I want you to read along with me out loud at home as we begin with verse 1 and end at verse, verse 6. Isaiah 53, beginning of verse 1 and ending at verse 6. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form, nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised. And rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded. For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our Father, today we come into the holy presence of God. Help us to comprehend your holiness. Help us to fathom the holiness of God. Touch us with your holiness. Help us to have a sense of awe and reverence and respect. Give us a spirit of meekness and teachability. Cleanse us from the filthiness of flesh and superfluity of naughtiness. I pray that you remove every distraction. That we're not sitting there like we're sitting in front of a TV set, sipping our coffee, our jamba juice, or cup of water not having a newspaper or magazine next to us, or feeling compelled to respond to a text message that we might be getting for someone that doesn't even know we're watching the service, or even being tempted, we have to send a text message. And because, Lord, you're holy, and because your word is true, and because your word is food to our soul, and because the word of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, and because, Lord, the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it pierces and divides asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. And because by them thy servant is warned, and the keeping of them there's great reward. And because your word is precious, incorruptible seed, Lord, we ask this morning that our undivided attention would be given to you and to your holy word and to this message and Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher and instruct us. Thank you for his indwelling. Thank you that he's a teacher who teaches us all things and speaks of Christ and gives him the glory. And this morning, I pray that you'd come into every home and come into every heart. And Lord, may you speak to us. May you put a tear in our eye. May you put a jerk on our heart, a throb inside of our soul. May you help us this morning to realize that, God, you are speaking to us about the most important event that ever happened in the world, the most important event that could change a man's life, that can save a man's soul, that can bring a man to heaven. We ask this morning that you take this service, and God, use me. Lord, I come today in fear and trembling and in much weakness and praying, dear God, this morning that, you're foolish, that the foolishness of man would confound the wise. And I pray that, God, the weakness of man would confine, that confound the mighty. And I pray that, God, you take that which is despised and rejected. And, Lord, that you bring to naught the things that are. I pray today that you will help me to stand and preach in the power of God. Speak to every heart. Encourage every soul. Build us up in the word of your grace. Save sinners today. Save souls that are not sure they're saved that they get saved today. Re -give, give assurance of salvation to those who are somewhat trepidatious about where they stand. Help those of us who've been saved and know we're going to heaven. Help us to just thank God for the gospel message that we'll hear today. Bless this service in a way that only you can and we'll give you the glory and the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We've been going through a series through the book of Isaiah, the theme being Behold Our God. The message this morning, the title of the message is, Behold My Savior. Isaiah 53 is a, is a prophetical message about Jesus Christ. Isaiah was one of the only prophets who had the privilege of prophesying about the birth of Jesus Christ, about 
the life of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that in Isaiah 53, about the fact that Jesus Christ was God's chosen servant. And he got to, he got to prophesy about the death of Jesus Christ, as well as the resurrection of Christ. And then he also got to prophesy about the second coming of Christ. I mean, you pretty much cover the whole gamut there. He, he, he covers in his prophecies about Christ and his eternality, Christ and his sinlessness, Christ and his humanity, Christ as the Son of God, Christ who was the, the Son that was given, Christ who's the everlasting Father. He touches on the deity of Jesus Christ. I mean, everything we read and study about Christology, about the deity of Jesus Christ, is found right here in the book of Isaiah. And I'm thankful right here in Isaiah 53, we have one of the greatest chapters of all the Bible right here. I know we have fast-forwarded a few chapters, but I just felt like I'll probably be done preaching through the book of Isaiah by the end of the year. And I know that... Uh, if I didn't do it now, I probably would just kind of get out of sequence. I felt like today, Isaiah 53 was just as appropriate as any Sunday, especially this Sunday, to just preach the Word of God to us from there. Now, Isaiah 53, is a, if you're not familiar with it, is an important chapter. It has been called the Holy of the Holy of the Holies of the Old Testament. It has been called the Gospel according to Isaiah. The Gospel message is recorded here. It has been called by Polycarp, the Golden Passional of the Old Testament. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said that Isaiah 53 is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. Uh, Kiel and Delitz, two German scholars who wrote much and have done much in commentaries about, about God's Word, said this. They said that it was like Isaiah was writing this sitting beneath the cross upon Golgotha. J. Vernon McGee, who's gone home to be with the Lord, a great Bible commentator, said that Isaiah 53 gives us a photograph of the cross. This morning, we're looking at what was called to, by some commentators and by theologians the fourth of the servant songs where I, we're seeing this morning Isaiah 53, our Lord and Savior, our Savior who died for us, the great substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for every sinner. We're going to see this morning the gospel recorded here in just one chapter. Everything we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Everything we find recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Everything we find recorded through the preaching of God's word in the book of Acts. It's found here in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. If you've not done so, pull down the notes if you would so you can follow along the preaching of your word. As I preach today, if maybe a question comes to your mind at the end of the message, shoot us a message there. Shoot us a question. If God is tugging on your heart about something, let us know through the message. We're here to minister and to serve you. I want you to notice this morning as we behold the servant of Jesus, the servant of God, Jesus Christ, and we behold my Savior, I want you to notice first of all, we see Jesus Christ, the faultless Son. Jesus Jesus Christ, the faultless son. As I said earlier, Isaiah had the privilege of prophesying of Jesus' birth, and it was a virgin birth, as we know from Isaiah 9-6 and Isaiah 7-14. But he also prophesied to us Jesus Christ, God's son, who came into this world. God's son who came into this world. The son of God who became the Son of Man. You notice in our passage we see Christ as in his sinless humanity. Christ in his sinless humanity. Now, as we read this, I want to remind you, he became a man, but Jesus was without sin. He was born of a virgin. There was no human father involved. There was no sinful DNA in Jesus. Now, you and I are born of a human father and a human mother. 
But Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost, as we find in Luke chapter 1. And by that miracle birth, there was no sin. As he left heaven's throne, sinless, he entered into our sinful world, sinless. I want you to notice how Isaiah points out to us the sinless humanity of Christ. Notice in verse 9, the latter part of verse 9, it says this, Because he has done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Now, Isaiah took time by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help us capture some words and some thoughts that help us understand Jesus Christ being sinless. He said in verse 9, he had done no violence. The word violence is a very strong word, which basically means he had done, he did no wrong, there was no injustice with him. It means, literally, that there was no lawlessness, there was no wickedness, there was no propensity for Christ to do any sin. He did no violence, and then the Bible says in verse 9, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. He never told a lie. He never said anything deceitful. And generally, lies and deceits, as you know, originate in the heart. The heart of our Savior was a pure heart. The heart of our Savior was a holy heart. We find that Jesus Christ was sinless in his humanity. Notice later on in verse, verse 11, he makes another statement here. He not only talks about the fact that Christ, there was no wrong in him, there was no wickedness in him, there was no lawlessness in him, there was no sin in him, he had no propensity to save, he had no deceitfulness in his heart, he didn't have a wrong motive, he didn't have an evil heart, none of that. But it tells us something else that's very interesting. In verse 11 it says, he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Notice this, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. What I want you to notice is that phrase, my righteous servant. Now, as far as man is concerned, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Dr. Glenn Schunk, who was a famous evangelist of days gone by, preached a message entitled, The Three Catholic Nuns. There are none righteous, no, not one. And I remind you this morning that Jesus Christ is the only one who could be called righteous, morally perfect, without flaw, never broken the law. He was, he was, law, he was lawful, you might say, never broke the law, morally perfect, absolute truth. He's the moral perfection of the Godhead. He's Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord my righteousness. Thank God this morning that Jesus was a servant of God, but he was righteous. Moses was a servant of God, but Moses had sin. Isaiah was a servant of God, but Isaiah had sin. Paul was a servant of God. He had sin. I serve the Lord, but I have sin. You love God, but you have sin. But praise God this morning, we have a sinless Savior. Peter, capturing upon that, said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 22. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Would you listen to verse 22? Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. We have a faultless son in Jesus Christ. We see his sinless humanity. But notice in Isaiah 53, we see something else about him being faultless. We see his sinless humanity, but we see his simple humility. Now I want you to catch this this morning, the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we read through Isaiah, we read the Lord saying to every one of those nations, saying to the nation of Israel, saying to the nation of Judah, saying to the nation of Babylon, saying to the nation of Assyria, saying to the nation of Moab, as we saw last week, as we'll see in, in following weeks, the nation of, of Syria and the nation of Egypt, and on and on and on. He speaks about the pride of those nations, the pride of their kings and all of that. Can I tell you something about our Lord Jesus Christ? You'll find in Jesus 
simple humility. Let's see that. Notice what the Bible says in verse 2. It describes the humility by which he grew up. He entered this world and came into this world. He shall grow up before him. Isaiah 53 verse 2. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He's not pictured as a, as a cedar of Lebanon. He's not pictured as a giant, monstrous sequoia tree. He's pictured as a sprout coming out, as a root out of a dry ground. It speaks of his humility. Notice the Bible says this about his description. He has no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't come across the stage of humanity as an Adonis, as a bodybuilder. He didn't come across the stage of, of, uh, of, of, of humanity uh, on the cover of GQ magazine. He didn't come across as someone that was a model that everyone would envy. No, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ entered this world as an ordinary man. It says he has no form nor comeliness. He wasn't extraordinarily, he didn't come across as being uh, somebody's very striking to us and appeared. He was a very normal, ordinary looking man. He came in humility. Philippians tells us that we see something else. Notice verse 11. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it speaks about Jesus Christ coming as a servant. He did not come as a CEO. He came as a servant. He did not come as a businessman. He came as the living word of God. He did not come as a millionaire, though he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He did not come as an as a earthly king, even though he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He did not come as one that would be an inventor, though he makes all things great. No, our Savior came as a simple servant of God. We see the simple humility in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. It tells us, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Aren't you glad this morning as we consider our Savior that he had a sinless humanity, but he was simply humble as well. Here is a simple humility. He was the creator of the world. And yet, if you would, he took upon him the position of a lowly carpenter who worked with his hands. He is the king of the ages, yet he became a servant of all men. He is God to whom the angels bow to, down to, yet on earth he lowered himself and washed the feet of his disciples. He is the one that we should bow and wash his feet, but instead he girded himself with a towel and he took a basin and with that towel he washes our feet. He's the one who demands our attention and yet he came not to be honored but give honor to God. He came that he might be recognized as a simple servant in his humility. I'm telling you this morning we have a savior in Jesus Christ who is the faultless son. He was humble and he was holy. But I want you to notice something else here as we look at this passage of scripture. We see Jesus Christ who is the faultless son. But do you notice as we see Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 was written to help us understand the doctrine of the substitutionary death of Christ. And to help us understand what we would call in our circles the vicarious atonement, or being basically the substitutionary death of Christ. Isaiah 53 is a great theological chapter. It's a great doctrinal chapter. But I want you to understand, as we read Isaiah 53, it explains why Jesus came. It explains who he came for. You see, Isaiah 53 was written for you and written for me. It had you in mind and had me in mind. It has every person in this world in mind. Because as we see a faultless son, we see in Isaiah 53, every fallen sinner. Every fallen sinner. Because as we read this, it makes it very clear. 
why Jesus came. The Bible tells us this. Notice we see that every sinner is disobedient. It explains to us that every sinner is disobedient. Now what is sin? Sin is disobedience. Look at verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. What a metaphorical description. What an amazing analogy. God said we are like sheep. Sheep have a mind of their own. Sheep have in their nature to go astray. To leave the safety of the flock. To go outside the boundary of the shepherd. He said, we have all turned himself and gone his own way. Disobedience is turning your face away from God. One of the rudest things that we can do as human beings is to turn our face, our attention away from somebody else. And as a sinner, every sinner in their disobedience turns their face away from God. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Now, we get concerned and bent out of shape when somebody is disobedient to us. But I want you to think with me for a minute how the heart of God is grieved that every one of us is born with a disobedient nature. The Bible says in Psalm 58.3, the wicked are strange from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. The moment you enter this world, you already have propensity to go astray because we're born with a sinful nature. Sin is disobedience. Sin is rebellion. Every sinner is disobedient. Notice, <coughs> notice in our passage of Scripture, every sinner is depraved. <coughs> go with me to verse 5. Actually, go back to verse 4. Excuse me, verse 6, I'm sorry. And in verse 6, he speaks about the iniquity of us all. All of us have sinned. In verse 5, some words are used to describe our condition. For instance, uh, he uses the word transgressions. Transgressions is used in verse 5, verse 8. Notice in verse 5 he says he was wounded for our transgression. Notice our transgression. Verse 8 says uh, he was cut off out of the land of the living. And it says, for the transgression of my people. And then again in verse 12, it says he made intercession for the transgressors. Transgression is a word that describes crossing a forbidden line. The line is crossed, it's a boundary line, and you violated the rules by crossing that forbidden line. He uses the word transgression, a very strong word. It means you broke the law, you, 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 you trespassed. He uses the word sin, and we get the doctrine of sin from this word sin. It's the, it's the Greek word hamartia. The doctrine of sin is called the do, hamartiology. And we see that 
The word sin is described here. Notice in verse 10, it says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He's put him to grief. Notice he's made him a, his soul an offering for sin. And then verse 12, he bear the sin. What does the word sin mean? Transgression means crossing a forbidden line. Sin, the word sin, hemarsha, means this. It means having missed the mark. It's aiming at a target, but you missed the bullseye. You've missed the mark. You've fallen short. That's what the Bible says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He used the word transgression. He used the word sin. He uses the word iniquity. Look again at verse 6. The iniquity of us all. Verse 5. He was bruised for our iniquities. Now as I describe these words, I want you to think with me for just a minute. The word iniquity is where we get our word depravity or depraved from. It covers the gamut, the extreme of sin. It covers the extreme of lying under oath, of murder, of heinous sins, of wickedness to a high degree, going against what God made natural and making it unnatural. And it, confined, it, it basically covers the gamut of every type of sin. And notice in these usages here, sin, the word sin of itself, can be considered singular or plural. But transgressions is in the plural. And iniquities is in the plural. And I think what he wanted us to understand is this, that every one of us has sin. And if we're so self-righteous that we would say, I only have one sin, the Bible tells us in the book of James chapter 2 that if we just break one point of the law, we've broken the whole law. If we just committed one sin, we've broken the whole law. And I remind you this morning, God sees us for who we are. He sees us as fallen sinners, those who are disobedient, those who are depraved. But notice, we see that every sinner is doomed. Every sinner is doomed. All sin must be punished. That's why we have Isaiah 53. All sin must be punished. Every cause has a consequence. You're going to reap what you sow. Every sin must be punished. For the wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. There's a consequence to sin. We should not mock at sin. We should not laugh at sin. God told God told Cain, if thou doest well, you'll be fine. But if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And I remind this morning, sin is no laughing matter. Sin is a crime against a holy and just God. Sin is our injustice against God. Sin is our disrespect towards God. Sin is our reverence towards God. Sin is our breaking the laws of God. God, sin reveals that we are unholy compared to a holy God. Sin reveals that we are unrighteous to a righteous God. Brother and sister in Christ and listener watching today, I want you to understand that there's the doom of every sinner, that every sinner that dies in a sin will spend all of eternity in hell. Disappointed in the man once to die. After this is the judgment. The punishment of sin is not a light punishment. It's not a slap on the wrist. To spend all of eternity in hell is spiritual separation from a loving God who does not want you to go to hell. It's separation. 
a great gulf fixed between us and God. There's no way for you to get to heaven, and there's no way God's going to reach out to you when you leave this life. And you wind up in hell. We see every fallen sinner. John Knox, the great preacher, said this, In youth, in mid-age, and now, after many battles, I find in me nothing but corruption. Isaiah writes to us about Jesus, the faultless son. And Isaiah writes to us about Jesus and every fallen sinner. Would you notice the crux of our message this morning? Isaiah writes to us about Jesus, who is the faithful substitute. The faithful substitute. His faithful substitution. And Isaiah started this section, notice verse 1, with a question. Who has believed our report? This is the gospel. This is the testimony. This is the revealed report from God. That salvation is available to all men. That sin has to be dealt with. And God dealt with sin on your behalf and mine through Jesus Christ. He wants us to know the power of that because he says in verse 1, And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The arm of the Lord reveals his strength, his power, his majesty. He says, Who has believed our report? I pray this morning that you'll believe this report. And he says, To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? I pray this morning you'd accept the offer of salvation from the arm of the Lord. And I want you to see this morning the substitutionary death the vicarious atonement of Jesus Christ for your sins and mine. The substitutionary death. The faithful substitution that Christ took my place and your place in dying for our sins. He was punished so that your sins could be forgiven. He was punished so that your sins could be paid for in full. He was punished so that you would have no sin debt. Part of the Stimulus Act, President Trump signed into law, includes an incredible provision for small businesses where they can access a loan right now, assuming there's money left, to help pay, make their payroll, the rent, Mortgage payments, utilities, so forth. They have to meet all the stipulations there. And the amazing thing about this, as long as the, that business meets those stipulations, the loan is forgiven at the end. You give documentation that you've done what you're supposed to do. Listen, the loan is forgiven at the end. And when Jesus Christ died for your sins and mine, listen, he's, this debt has been satisfied. There's no further debt that you owe God. I want you to notice with me, his faithful substitution. First of all, I want you to behold my Savior. I want you to behold my Savior and his sorrows. Before we look at the suffering, I want you to notice the heartache and the grief and the sorrows of our Savior. Behold my Savior and his sorrow. Isaiah starts off in 50, verse, verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. Can you imagine the creator of the earth coming to earth and he was despised and rejected of men. 
The Bible says in John 1.10, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. I remind this morning, Jesus did not, get a, did not enter this world in a parade. He was not received with open arms. He was despised, and He was rejected. They rejected Him. They despised Him. The Bible says, describes Him as a man of sorrows. Listen, can you imagine that? A man of sorrows. There's some in our church right now, some that we know in our community, carrying immense heartache, immense sorrows. They've had loved ones that have passed away, even in the midst of this COVID-19 situation, and they're carrying great sorrows. There are men and women of sorrows, but I want you to understand, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is truly a man of sorrows because he understood and he empathized and he sympathized and he understood and plunged himself and to understand all the sorrows of humanity. The Bible says he was a man of sorrows. He carried our sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He bore our grief. He was at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus, and he wept over the death of Lazarus. He wept as Mary and Martha wept. He understood the heartache and sorrow of a woman that had a disease, a hemorrhaging disease, and that she spent up all her money and saw all the doctors, and for 12 years she was none the better. Our Savior carried the burdens and sorrows of widows who had to bury their sons who died. He carried the burden and sorrow of a rich man who came from Capernaum. He walked 15 miles from Capernaum to visit Jesus there at Cain of Galilee. And Jesus wanted to see if this man was for real. And that man broke down and he cried. And he said, Sir, the Greek word is kurios. The Greek word means Lord. He said, Sir, come down ere my son die. He felt the grief of that man. He felt the grief of Jairus as he walked with Jairus to go to his home. And when the servants came out and says, Oh, don't, don't bother the master. Your daughter is dead. He, con he, he considered the sorrow. He went up to Tyre and Sidon. He went up there on that great coastline for one lady, a Gentile lady, a Syrophoenician lady, whose daughter was possessed with demons. The Bible says, He was a man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. He carries our burdens. He carries our sorrows. He knows all about it. The Bible says in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Our Lord and Savior was on the cross. The sixth, about the sixth hour of the day, 12 noon, darkness covered the land. It wasn't an eclipse. Darkness covered the land. Jesus knowing that he was doing exactly the will of the Father. He, we see that here in Isaiah. He uttered the statement which perhaps shows the depths of sorrow and pathos and grief that any soul could go through. Because God the Father would not interfere with the death of His Son. And God the Father had to turn His back, may I say, on God the Son. And as the earth, that area turned dark, 
Jesus cried out in a way that captured every tension, every centurion, everyone assembled at the cross, everyone that's nearby the thieves on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Behold, my Savior in his sorrow. I want you to know you don't have a sorrow, you don't have a grief. He's not born. He's not carried. You say, well, nobody cares and nobody loves me and I've been rejected. I'm going to tell you this morning, the Bible says he was rejected of men. The Bible says in verse 3, he's despised and rejected men. Whatever rejection you have received, whatever rejection you have gone through, it pales in comparison to the resurrection, to the rejection of our Lord Jesus Christ there. says he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Behold my Savior in his sorrow. Behold my Savior in his sufferings. Did you notice the suffering of our Savior? It was for you and me. He took our place. Notice, notice in verse 4, it says, surely he's born, notice this phrase, our griefs. Notice in verse 4, he carried our sorrows. Notice in verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. Notice in verse 6, it says, the, he, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Notice Jesus, he took our place. He took our place. Our sins. Our chastisement. Our peace. Our iniquities. You notice in verse 6, this is important. Would you notice this? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity, notice these next two words, the iniquity of us all. Let me just pause and put a statement there. There's no limited atonement there, amen? There's no limited atonement there. It was for us all. He died for every sinner, not for some elect bunch of people. He died for every sinner. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at the words in verse 5. He was wounded. The word wounded means he was pierced. In the book of Zechariah, the question is asked of our Savior, what are those wounds in thy hand? He was pierced. He was pierced with nails. He was pierced with crown of thorns. He was pierced with a spear thrust into his heart. He was wounded. The Bible says he was bruised. The word bruised means literally he was crushed. It coincides with the phrase in verse 4, he was stricken and smitten and afflicted. He was bruised. He carries the idea of the soldiers pummeling him and smiting him on the face. In Isaiah chapter 52, you go up to the previous chapter, it describes the heinous, the heinous punishment Jesus went through. It says in Isaiah 52, 14, And as many were astonished at, as many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred, 
more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He was crushed under the burden after being beaten and exhausted and wasted. He was crushed under the burden of carrying the crossbeam to Golgotha's hill. It says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. It speaks of the, the, the doctrine of reconciliation, the method of reconciliation. The Bible says we are reconciled through his blood on the cross. The chastisement of our peace literally means he was punished to accomplish our peace through the shedding of his blood on the cross. That's what it means. Verse 5 says, speaks of his stripes. That's speaking about his scourging. And interestingly enough, as we study Isaiah 53, Isaiah got a foreshadowing, a prophetical foreshadowing of what Jesus would go through. And more than once, even more than twice, Isaiah uses the phrase about stripes or stricken, or smitten, and afflicted to describe the scourging of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we read the Gospel of Eretus, the word scourging, everyone understood that phrase. It was a very, one of those words that would make you shudder. It would make you be filled with fear. And because scourging, in most cases, would kill the man. A man would be whipped, 40 times with a cat of nine tails. With scourging, you'd be torn to shreds. With scourging, there would be incredible loss of blood. With scourging, there was, there was inhumanity. With scourging, everything's laid bare. With scourging, it's a whipping that wound that rips you apart. You never recover from that. Most men who are scourged never make it through that process. And the Bible says in verse 4, he was stricken. And notice, smitten of God, God allowed his son to go through his punishment. And he was afflicted. It says in verse 8, for the transgression of my people was he afflicted. With his stripes. The scars that would remain after a person went through scourging would be like long stripes laid across his back. But when he was wounded for our transgressions, he, he took my place and your place. He was pierced for you and me. He was crushed or bruised for our depravity. He received the chastisement or punishment of God for our peace because there's no peace with God until our sins are paid for. There's no peace with God until our sins are atoned for. Notice the Bible says that with the stripes we are healed. Now, the healing there is the word Rapha. And we know our Savior in the book of Exodus as Jehovah Rapha. As the Lord who heals, we know that he heals us of all our diseases. And what that's talking about there, that through his scourging, through his punishment, 
through the afflictions he received, that Jehovah Rapha is able to heal us of our sins. He's able to heal us of those iniquities. He's able to save our sin-sick soul. The Bible says he bore the sins of many. The Bible says that in verse 11, my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. As Peter even referenced to that in 1 Peter 2.24. He became the propitiation for our sins. This morning, my friend, behold my Savior in his suffering. His substitutionary death. His sacrificial death. He died for you and I. He suffered all those things. Behold my Savior in his sorrow. Behold my Savior in his, in his suffering. Behold my Savior in his silence. Now I want you to think with me for just a minute because sometimes we overlook this. Peter made a statement in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before the shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. He didn't protest the suffering. He didn't complain he had to die for you and me. He wasn't belly aching that he took upon the sins of all humanity. He did not complain he was the iniquity, he bore the iniquity for us all. He opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. He did not protest his suffering. He didn't say, God, why are you doing this? God, take it away. God, God, I shouldn't be doing this. They should suffer for their own sins. The Bible says when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. He did not curse God one time. He did not curse God. He did not blame God. He did not accuse God. He didn't get angry with God. He The Bible says as a lamb brought to the brought brought to its death, and his sheep before its shearers is dumb. Basically, the analogy there, he's just like a sheep, following other sheep, and seeing what's going on, but there's complete silence. I want you to understand, our Lord and Savior was in complete submission to the will of the Father. Behold my Savior in his sorrow. Behold my Savior in his suffering. Behold my Savior in his silence. But notice this passage. Behold my Savior and his cessation. Now a man could suffer and still survive. Jesus suffered and he died. And Isaiah wanted us to make sure as we study this, there had to be a death. We call it an expiation, a sacrificial death, a substitutionary death. And I want you to notice as he's writing this, Isaiah makes some very, very important statements. Notice verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who should declare his generation? In other words, now he's been unjustly tried. He's been brought before a kangaroo court that found him guilty of sins he never committed, crimes he never committed. It was an illegal trial, illegal trial. He was oppressed. He was falsely accused. They've declared judgment on him. They said, give us Barabbas, crucify Christ. And so we read verse 8, 
Who shall declare his generation? He'll have no, he'll have no physical sons. He'll have no physical heirs. And others speak about the fact his life is going to end. And it shows on by singing verse 8. For he was cut off out of the land of the living. Daniel talks about that. Daniel chapter 9. He says Messiah shall be cut off. The term cut off means literally he would be killed. He would breathe his last breath and die. We go down in verse 9. It says he made his grave with the wicked and the rich. Notice this in his death. Verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul unto death. I want you to understand this morning, Jesus died for every sinner. Jesus died for your sins. Indeed, Jesus died for my sins. Jesus' death involved his wounding. Jesus' death involved his piercing and his bruising and being stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Jesus' death involved the fact he would shed his blood. He would go through terrible scourging. All of that involved one thing ultimately would lead to the death and cessation of Jesus Christ. God died for you and me. We read verse 9, he, was, he died and he was buried. He had no grave. He was placed in the borrowed tomb an unused tomb of a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus died for us. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 1.4 says, Who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father, Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Hey, behold my Savior. Behold my Savior. His faithful substitution. Let's wrap it up. Because I want to pull it together. And I want you to know there's a silver lining in all this. I want you to know the sun is coming up in the morning. I want you to know that there was good news in spite of Christ's death on Golgotha's hill. I want you to know there's some good news as we close on this because as we see the faultless sun, as we see the fallen sinner, as we see the faithful substitution, I'm happy and glad to tell you we see the Father's satisfaction. We see the Father's satisfaction. Notice as we close this section of Scripture, the most important thing that follows the death of Jesus Christ is that the sin debt is paid in full and God's demands for sins are completely satisfied. Hallelujah! Verse 11. We see a finished accomplishment. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. The Father's demands for sins are paid in full and met completely through the death of Jesus Christ. A finished accomplishment. Notice in verse 11, 
There's some wonderful things it teaches us here. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And then he says this. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Now salvation was paid in full through Jesus' death. And justification is accomplished at the cross. Justify means, it's a, it's a, it's a judicial term. That means that the person's account where there was a sin, it's removed. And when you look at that account, it's as if he never sinned. And so Jesus, when he justified us, he both exonerated us from our sins, but he expunged us of our sins, praise God. He should justify many. And we read something else here. We read in verse 10 that it says, we go to the middle part there, it says, he shall prolong his days. Do you see that? It just wasn't the death of Jesus Christ. The prolonging of his days means this, that he would be raised from the dead. Praise God. Hey, I want you to know something. He's not a rotting corpse inside that tomb. He's alive. He's alive. Jesus is risen. Listen, he's risen from the dead. He's alive. I was dead, but now I'm alive. Listen, the Father said, I, he shall prolong his days. In other words, he said, I, he was, he's not going to be dead. He's going to live forever and ever. And I want you to rejoice this morning that in the finished work of Jesus Christ, it included his sorrows, it included his sufferings, it included his death, but it includes his resurrection from the dead. Christ satisfied all the God, God's demands for your sins and mine when he died on the cross. We see, the, we see a finished accomplishment. We see the Father's attitude. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He should make his soul an offering for sin. Listen, when, when it says that, it means Jesus gave his entire life for our sins. says he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. First, God was pleased that Jesus Christ would be our sin offering. Let me, let me help you with this. Listen, listen. We're almost done. God is not pleased, nor will he accept your good work for salvation. God is not pleased, nor will he accept your religious affiliation for salvation. God is not pleased, nor will he accept baptism for your salvation. God is not pleased, nor will he accept some type of a work, taking communion, bowing before some God, becoming religious in your vows, shaving your head, putting on certain types of garments, holding some beads, listen, all those things, they're religious in nature. The Bible says very specifically, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It says, the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The Father's attitude is this, God's will was done. If you want to please God, what pleases God is knowing that Jesus is the only acceptable sacrifice for sin. Secondly, the Father's attitude is that after Christ died, that he's exalted. 
You see, in this chapter, we see his sinless humanity. We see his substitutionary atonement. We see his death on the cross. We see his burial in the tomb. We see his resurrection from the grave. But we see Jesus in glory, praise God. Listen, this morning, they despised and rejected him. But I'll tell you, the story is really good. Because even though in the beginning, they despise and reject him. As we get to the end, they glorify him. They exalt him. Hey, praise God this morning. He's a glorious Savior, a glorious God. Unto him be glory in the church, world without end, throughout all ages. Praise God. He says in verse 12, Therefore will I divide him in portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. You know what he's saying? That one day when Jesus comes again, every king will bow before him, and every nation will acknowledge him as God, and every tongue shall confess he's God and Savior and Lord. Listen, every tongue shall confess, and every knee shall bow, and say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. He's exalted. Oh, listen, it's a finished accomplishment. There's the Father's attitude. But you know something? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. But I want you to notice, as I'm done, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, And would you notice, nestled here, it's a reminder, all this was for you and me. All this was for you and me. Well, notice verse 10 again. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, would you notice this next phrase? He shall see his seed. You see, Christ dying for our sins he seen, he looked beyond his death, and he saw the salvation of, every, of sinners. The seed represents every person who believes on the name of the Son of God, who receives the gift of eternal life. The Bible says in John 1.12, and to as many as received him, to them gives he, gives he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Listen, this morning, what saves you is faith alone in Jesus Christ. Faith alone in his death on the cross. Faith alone in his shed blood. Faith alone that he died for you and he rose again from the dead. Repenting of our sins and faith alone. He shall see his seed. Did you know what he means by that? He sees you and he sees me in the accomplished work that he did on the cross. He sees you in it. The faith acceptance is he wants you to be part of his kingdom. He wants you to be part of the household of God. He wants you to get saved. He wants you to get your sins under the blood and knowing for once for all. Listen, this morning, April 5th, you can be born again into the family of God. April 5th, you need to mark this day. That's the day that you get saved. That's the day you call upon the Lord's Savior. It doesn't matter what you thought about. It doesn't matter what your affiliation was. What really matters today that you can consider today to be your second birthday when you're born into God's family. Now, the question's asked as we're done. Who has believed our report? Would you believe this morning would you believe on the name of the Son of God? There's none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. Neither is there salvation in any other. Would you believe that only Jesus can save you from your sins? Would you believe? 
Would you realize you can't save yourself? The arm of the Lord is God is the one who gives salvation. I'm going to help you trust Christ this morning, friend. If you're not saved, receive him today.